Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage <laughs> continues now with the magnificent Lara Coates and the awe-inspiring Allison Camerata. Lara, Allison, how are you guys? Good, oh, Jake Tapper. We know your yeah, name. Yeah, we know your name. Handsome Jake Tapper. That's what we refer to you oh, as so in kind. private. Hey, can I be a correspondent for you for one second? Yeah, go ahead. So I was watching, you know, I'm from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've heard that, but, well, I, yeah, but yeah. I am. A couple times. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I watched a lot of the Oz-Fetterman uh, debate. And interesting little tidbit. After the debate, the Republican senator who's, uh, who's leaving, Pat Toomey, he wrote... It's sad to see John Fetterman struggling so much. He should take more time to allow himself to fully recover. Mm. Very pointed statement from a Republican senator. The Democratic senator from Pennsylvania, Casey, Bob Casey, wrote after the debate, Fetterman has a clear record of public service. The empathy of a leader understands the Commonwealth. He knows Pennsylvania. He cares about Pennsylvania. He's going to be a great senator. Like no comment at all about the debate itself. I thought it was just kind of interesting that the, the two senators had those reactions. Clearly a Rorschach test. I mean, clearly how they want people to view this through a particular lens. You know, either they know we're only two weeks away from the midterm election. So these are the candidates. This is these are the options. So I guess they're reflecting that in terms of how they want the people to commute understanding what happened. And our panel have very strong feelings. Yeah. They watched it, too. And they have very strong feelings about how John Great. Fetterman performed. I mean, all eyes obviously were on him and uh, it was challenging. I mean, it seemed like at, at certain times. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, Jake, thank you very much for setting the table for us. All right, guys. You didn't even see my Philadelphia colors today. You're an Eagles fan, right? You didn't yeah, but even I'm not, see this? But we just had a bye week and I'm still in Philly zone. We've all still right, got fine. the World Series to get through. If you, right. have, if you want a little powder blue and red tomorrow, that'd be awesome. Thanks. We done. Done. All right. Easy. Fine. Okay. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates. And I'm Allison Camerata. This is CNN Tonight. And we've got all the big moments from what may be the most closely watched debate of the entire midterm season, the one and only debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. So what will it mean nationwide for Democrats and Republicans? Plus, what happens to Joe Biden's presidency if there is a red wave for the midterms? Presidential historian John Meacham is going to be with us tonight. He'll tell us why this is the most consequential election since the Civil War. Can you imagine if it really is? Since the Civil well, War? Well, I trust him. I trust him yeah. on any historical question whatsoever. He's Pulitzer Prize winning. So if he says it is, it must be. So we'll ask him his rationale for We're that. We're going to talk to him about it soon. I can't wait to have that conversation. Let's kick it off right now with former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent, also Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who is Trump White House Communications Director, and Tobin Marcus, a former economic policy advisor to then-Vice President Joe Biden. I mean, look, there was a lot that happened tonight. We've been waiting for this debate. It's been, you know, will they debate? Will they not debate? Now it's here. And the question was, how would he perform given the stroke that he experienced back in May? He actually addressed it off the top in part. Let's play it. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, 
mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down that needs to keep get back up. Hmm. When you think about that and the idea of how he turned it into a discussion really about, look, I am the every person. One, was that effective to you? I mean, that wasn't the moment people were talking about him struggling, frankly. We'll show those in a minute. But the idea of, of talking about it in that context, you were waiting for this debate. Was that persuasive to you as a way to set the stage? Uh, no, it really wasn't. I mean, I thought somebody should have invoked the mercy rule about 20 minutes into the debate. Yeah. Uh, Fetterman, in my view, I, I don't know if it was the stroke or if he's just a lousy debater, or if he doesn't understand the issues. He had a very, he was flustered, he was confused. Uh, he, he should not have been out there. Um, I, and I, I've had a number of people say, why is this guy even on the ballot right now after that? Now, I don't know that debates matter that much, but if people watch that, you're, they're, they're gonna question his capacity to serve. The bar was set very low. It should have been set lower. Mm. Well, on that point, let's say the right, I mean, you talk about this too, Allison, the bar was set so low in the sense of, I mean, Dr. Oz, you know him because he's a television personality. Right, he knows presence. how to do TV. He's been doing it for two decades. I mean, that's what John Fetterman was saying. But this was, I think, in a different category, mm, it sounds yeah. like. So let's uh, listen to a moment where um, John Fetterman struggled, seemed to struggle. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule, that if he's on TV, he's lying. He did that during his career on his TV show. He's done that during his campaign about lying about our record here. And he's also lying probably during this debate. I want to bring civility, balance, all the things that you want to see because you've been telling it to me on the campaign trail. And by doing that, we can bring us together in a way that has not been done of late. Democrats, Republicans talking to each other. John Fetterman takes everything to an extreme and those extreme positions hurt us all. Okay, Alyssa, your thoughts as you watch that? So listen, Dr. Oz has the advantage of a career in TV. He's an excellent communicator, but that wasn't why he won tonight's debate. He hit on every major issue that voters are focused on. The economy, crime in Pennsylvania, huge issue, energy. He had substance behind him, and there was this unifying general election message. I, I want to be careful because I think some of the most consequential leaders in history have had different kinds of disabilities. I don't think it should preclude someone from serving. But what we saw today was someone who is not ready to be in office. And the lack of transparency leading up to this, I think, actually shocked people watching it. Like, I found it extremely hard to watch. Um, and the question that I found myself asking is, is the way that he's struggling a result of the stroke? Or is it because he doesn't have a grasp on the issues? He was asked a very direct question about his position on fracking. He could not explain why he fundamentally 180 changed his position on it. And the voters deserve to know that. I want to play that because, honestly, and Tobin, I want to hear your take on this as well. Because what we've played so far, frankly, for the audience who may have not have seen these debates... I don't know that it's conveying that level of difficulty answering the questions as much as we're talking about it right now. I want you to respond, Tobin, but let's play the moment that you're saying, Alyssa, that really is suggestive and illustrative of the point you're making. I always believe that independence with our energy is, is critical and we can't be held, you know, you know, ransom to somebody like Russia. You know, I've always believed that 
Energy independence is critical, and I've always believed that, and I do support fracking. I do want to clarify something. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking, and I don't, I don't, I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. Tobin? Yeah, the fracking answer that he gave was one of the lower moments in a generally tough performance. I think the clip that you played immediately before that, him sort of trying to lay out the, the Oz rule, was an attempt to uh, guard against what he knew was going to be a lot of incoming fire he was going to take. Oz obviously came in attempting to portray him as radical. It was very clearly going to be the strategy. I think he knew he was not going to have the nimbleness to be able to respond to those in real time, and so was trying to make a sort of blanket effort to, uh, to, to uh, you know, uh, create an issue around honesty and the sort of validity of Oz's attacks. But, you know, for anyone who is coming into this totally undecided, if you drop a voter into Harris who had no engagement with this beforehand, it's hard to see them coming away terribly, terribly convinced by, mm. by Fetterman there. And we should mention that he, he was using closed captioning. So he was, using, he was able to read um, the questions and the words rather than just hearing them because he's admitted he has auditory processing issues now because of the stroke. And, you know, Charlie, it's interesting. I've interviewed him many times um, as lieutenant governor, and he, sounds, he sounded different before the stroke. I mean, in, in the interviews, he was much more um, sort of clear-spoken than what I'm hearing now. Here's a moment where they're talking about their differences on the economy. So let's play that. I can make the difficult decisions, as you do in the operating room as a surgeon. I'll make them cutting our budget as well to make sure we don't have to raise taxes on a population already desperately in pain from the high inflation rate. He has never met an, air, uh, an oil company that he doesn't swipe right about. You know, he has never been able to stand up for working families all across Pennsylvania. You know, we must push back. Inflation has hurt Americans and Pennsylvania's families, and it has given the oil companies record profits. I'm glad you played that, Allison, though. I mean, just for your answer, because I, I feel like we, we've been hearing a lot about all the things he did wrong. And I, I have, you know, no skin in the game in this particular race. But I am I'm glad we played something that did demonstrate. I didn't think that it was something that was um, so problematic compared to the juxtaposition that we sowed earlier. Well, you know, it just seemed like these answers were not particularly coherent. And I'm being kind when I say that. You know, on, on energy, Pennsylvania's the second largest gas producing state in the nation. I wanted to hear him explain his evolution. He couldn't do it. I support fracking. I support fracking. Well, he didn't, but he couldn't explain it. You know, we wanted to hear him talk about crime and his role on the Board of Pardons. And I didn't hear anything that explained his rationale for some of the decisions, highly questionable decisions that he made there. He wasn't able to articulate what it was that he stood for. And that's what was really troubling to me. And again, I, I, feel, I almost feel very sorry for him that, you know, he's in a bad, bad way. But as a voter, I'm looking at this saying, how can I vote for somebody who I don't think is ready to do the job? Well, what do you think, Tobin? I'm curious because you you worked for, um, you know, the vice president, Joe Biden at the time. And truth be told, he was criticized at times for not being as nimble as he once was, obviously different reasons. He was criticized for the way in which he would articulate certain points. And there was always a bit of wind in the face of then candidate Biden on that very point. When you're looking at it from that perspective, do you see the same concerns that they're talking about? 
I think the strengths of President Biden as a campaigner line up in some ways with the strengths that that Fetterman has still as a campaigner, despite his impairments. I think he connects at the level of values with voters. I think his campaign is connected uh, uh, or made that a, a very intentional focus. His kind of blue collar branding, I think, does make some of the lack of polish a little bit forgivable to some of the voters who in- are inclined to support him. And I think, frankly, in this debate, despite what was you know, I think objectively a rough performance by Fetterman, people who were inclined to be sympathetic to one candidate or the other, I think probably came away with enough to, you know, sort of reinforce You don't think it's changed the momentum? Uh, I mean, you know, given how many people genuinely watch these things, it's hard for me to see this, you know, being a big inflection point in the polling, given how tight things are. I mean, negative partnerships, very powerful. Mm. I think people have a lot of reasons to be where they are. This is the battle for control of the Senate. I think even more than the competence of the candidate, that's going to be but a decisive to, to put a finer point on this discussion, Joe Biden's very prone to gaffes. I've been critical of gaffes and misstatements and sometimes struggling to get, you know, different sentences out. But I've never been concerned that he has a grasp on the policy issues, even if I disagree with his policies. This was a candidate where I was genuinely unclear if he understood how to address crime, how to address the economy and inflation. And then when he did uh, try to lob attacks on Oz, they didn't land. Um, it didn't seem like he had a full grasp. He went after him on he wants to cut Medicare and, um, and Social Security. Oz was ready for it, and he wasn't able to articulate. So I'm not a Pennsylvania voter, but the momentum was very, very clearly in Oz's side here. You know, and it, we should note that there's already been over 640,000 pre-election votes that have already been cast. I'm one of them. And you, you're one of them. Yeah. And 73% went to have gone, they think, to Democrats versus 19% to Republicans. So if it's the idea that, look, the debates don't matter, I wonder to what extent this works. But there has been a really big issue. We talk about this a lot on the issue of immigration. I mean, for those issues that have not usually been the talking points in the state of Pennsylvania compared to other places, they address that point tonight. Listen to this. I understand what legal immigration offers us, but the completely porous, open nature of our border, which John Fetterman supports, has created a humanitarian crisis with cartels profiting, with human trafficking operations. They take the money, they buy narcotics from China, and bring that into our country, and it's making every state a border state. Pennsylvania is already a border state because we're top three in the country in fentanyl overdoses. I believe that uh, a secure border is can be compatible with compassion. I believe we need a comprehensive and bipartisan solution for immigration. That, that's what I believe. I don't ever recall in the Statue of Liberty did they say, you know, you know, take our tired huddle masses and put them on a bus and use cheap political stunts about them. What did you think, Charlie? That's a, that was a good... That was his best answer. I was, that was one of his better answers of, of the night. Uh, but again, I, I, I just am, I'm just still astounded. I'm still stunned by what I witnessed tonight. And that, um, you know, and this is... And they should have had more debates, by the way. I was one of the people... And this is a big state. There should be at least two debates, probably three. One in the Philadelphia market, Pittsburgh market, and then like tonight in Harrisburg. But he didn't want to debate for an obvious reason. And we, we witnessed it tonight. Yeah, I mean, he was honest about that. He was honest about why he didn't want to debate and that it would be halt. His speech would be halting and it would take him a while to process. And I think we're seeing evidence of that. But he yeah. was the lieutenant governor. I mean, he didn't come out of nowhere. Right. He is yeah. the lieutenant governor. So surely he is <laughs> steeped in policy issues. As Not really. Um, knowing what the lieutenant governor does in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I always say it's amazing what some guys will do to get a house, a driver and a swimming pool. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you, don't, you really don't vote on policy. You can only vote on procedure. And, you know, and rarely do they ever vote. But are you saying, I mean, hold, I want to ask you, Sir Tobin, do you, I've heard this articulated earlier today, and I think you made the point, Alyssa. I, I don't think we should be naive to believe that 
one's acumen as respect to policies is the only determining factor for people who are running for office. Trump was criticized for not having a command of policy compared right. to, say, Hillary Clinton, I mean, who, who was also criticized for not having the acumen compared to, say, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren and the, and the textbooks that she would bring out to explain the policies. In a sense, it can be relative, but this debate and all debates are highly performative. And that's the objectivity that I think people are talking about here, that if the battle really is about, do I like him? How do you perform? That's the crux of the issue here. Not that he didn't have the complete command as if it's a universal requirement. Right, absolutely. At the level of performance, I think it's very clear that Oz, quote unquote, won the debate. The question is whether or not that is the decisive factor in terms of how voters are looking at this. I think you mentioned likability. I think a lot of voters who are inclined to like him anyway, someone who's outside Washington, a very different kind of politician. um, I think that doesn't come away particularly shaken by this. And, you know, if he was your uncle, I think you'd be encouraged by the progress that you've seen since the stroke that he had. And people who have some sympathy for him, some, you know, pre-existing affinity, you know, I think probably find something to like in this. So probably it still just comes down to what are starkly different policy platforms that the two candidates have. I think there aren't a lot of people who don't know kind of, you know, which policy platform lines up. Final thought on this? Well, we didn't get to the abortion part of it, but I think that it was a masterful answer by Dr. Oz for a general election candidate who's moderating himself now on abortion, realizing he needs women to turn out. Mm. Yeah, and basically that answer was, I would leave it to the states. I do not want a federal And always uh, exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother. Can um, you tell, though, how we've all lowered our standards for what it takes to be a senator? <laughs> I mean, are we seeing that problem? All of, I mean, we, we didn't even talk about Georgia. You know, you, we'll talk during the break about that very notion. Mm. All right. Let us know what you think about all of this now that you've heard some of the big moments from this debate tonight between Fetterman and Oz. What are your thoughts? Tell us that. And anything else you want to say to Laura and me? And I mean anything. <laughs> I mean within us, reason. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Pennsylvania Senate candidates John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz facing off tonight in their first and only debate. It's a critical race that could determine which party controls the Senate. And some of the focus tonight was on 2024. Mr. Oz, uh, Donald Trump has supported you. He has endorsed you. Why won't you fully commit to supporting him in 2024? Oh, I do. I would support Donald Trump if he decided to run for president. Do you support a Biden run in 2024? Why in 60 seconds? Uh, That's obviously it's up to his choice whether he, you know, and if he does choose to run, I would absolutely support him. Okay. well, there's no one better to discuss what's at stake than presidential historian John Meacham. He has at times advised President Biden and is the author of the new book. And there was light Abraham Lincoln and the American struggle. John, thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to see you. You're so good at giving us the big picture. So tell us why you think that this is the most important election since 1850. Well, I think it's the most important election easily uh, since that period because we are facing a stress test for the rule of law. And democracies run not just on policies, not just about what a particular policy or tax rate is. It's about an overall context of our mutual respect for each other as fellow citizens and a 
sanctity of law and custom that means that people who win elections legitimately get to serve in office uh, when you deplete the trust in the system, which is what is unfolding today around the country. And I, I will confess, as George W. Bush might say, I misunderestimated uh, the uh, power of, uh, of the big lie here. But it, it's, it's burrowed in, and democracies do not long endure if everything becomes about power at the expense of winning humbly and losing graciously. You know, speaking of the big lie, and I thought it was really interesting in your book that you touch on this notion, I think maybe people would not, it would not occur to them that both Lincoln and Biden are grappling with, or at some point were grappling with, their own version of the big lie. In Lincoln's case, it was the big lie that slavery was a justifiable institution that ought to be maintained. And you write in the book, there were three moments where had he succumbed to the pressure, had his vice president succumbed to the pressure, had he turned over the Fort Sumter to try to placate the Confederacy and delay the Civil War, the course of history might be very different. You draw these analogies in a way I think is, is not always so obvious, but it's fascinating to think of how and where we are today. The central question for all of us, I think, uh, and this is about leaders and the lead, and, and we're all on the hook for this, for the continuation of the constitutional experiment, the question is, do we put our own interests above everything else? And if you do, then this becomes a war of all against all. And if it's all politics, as opposed to also having a moral component, and I'm not preaching here, moral means how we are with each other. It's, it's about custom. If, if, if we go entirely political, if it's entirely every moment is this battle, uh, where this cataclysmic, then the system doesn't endure. So as you, as you kindly mentioned, Abraham Lincoln, if he had been solely a politician, he would have made several, could have made several different decisions that would probably have sustained slavery, certainly late into the 19th century and possibly into the 20th century, because there was a perfectly rational compromise on the table after he wins the presidency to expand slavery to the West, let it go into Arizona and New Mexico, you know, and what was America but an exercise in, in compromise? Lincoln said no. And partly it's, it's kind of like what Churchill did in 1940. He saw that appeasement had not worked and that if, in fact, you gave in once more, that the South, the white South, where I come from, wasn't just interested in slavery in its limited sphere. There was a, an ambitious plan to take slavery, to, to add Cuba to the empire, to add Mexico, Nicaragua, to build this, it was called the Golden Circle. And it was gonna expand, and it would have cha fundamentally changed the course of everything. And Abraham Lincoln, flawed, fallen, and fallible, said no. And he said no because he believed fundamentally that slavery had to die and the union had to improve. So John, why hasn't Joe Biden and the Democrats, why haven't they been able to defeat this big lie that has burrowed in, as you say? Why in this, you know, in 2022, with all of the facts available at our fingertips that can debunk the, the notion that Donald Trump, who lost the election, that it was somehow stolen from him, why has it burrowed into this degree now? It's part of human nature. Uh, 
it's a miracle we've gotten this far. Uh, when you think about it, uh, almost 250 years, uh, I think it would have surprised the founders. Uh, and the, the analogy we're talking about, the Civil War, let's remember, the white South was willing to fight a war that ultimately claimed probably 750,000 lives rather than give up human enslavement. So America didn't wake up in 1861 one morning and say, you know what, I think it's time to emancipate, enter a modern world and seek an integrated society. We didn't really do that until 1965. That's the founding of the era we're in. We are sitting in a country that's about 60 years old, if you think about it, right? Voting rights and civil rights and the immigration laws that shifted the way the country is, all were in 1964 and 65. And so there's a perennial selfishness, there's appetite, there's ambition. And the remarkable thing about the United States is that we've managed to get just enough right. That doesn't mean we stop, that doesn't mean we're self-satisfied, but we have to remember this is a day by day, generation by generation struggle to put a more perfect union ahead of just whatever we want in this moment. Really insightful. I mean, thinking about the founding of the country as we know it, around the civil rights movement period, a really profound text as well. And of course, you write about the idea of the, the very difficult task of trying to appeal to conservatives and liberals. The work certainly is still cut out for the modern day president. Thank you. Thanks, John. And the book again is There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. Always great to talk to you, John. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. It was really interesting. It always back. is. I can listen to him all day long. Well, we don't have or to night. tonight. <laughs> All night long, well, we've got also. other people to talk to as well <laughs> through midnight here tonight. And it's also about, well, have you heard about reinstating with back pay? This is a story out of New York where a judge ruled that some New York workers who've been fired for refusing to get the vaccine, well, now they get their jobs back and with back pay. Stay with us. So is it a sign we're moving closer to a post-COVID America? Because today, a New York state judge reinstating 16 fired New York City sanitation workers who failed to comply with the city's vaccine mandate. Now, in that ruling, the judge found the mandate to be what he called arbitrary and capricious. He also decided the fired workers should get back pay as well. A spokesman with the city's law department releasing a statement to CNN following the ruling, saying in part... The city strongly disagrees with this ruling and has already filed an appeal. Joining us, joining us now, he's champing at the bit to weigh in on this issue. CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, Lisa Farrah Griffin, and Tobin Marcus are also back with us now. First of all, Joey, the idea of arbitrary and capricious, his point was, look, you pulled this back for the private sector employees, like an athlete, like a musician. That's right. But public workers, you said... No. Absolutely so. So there has to be some uniformity, right? When you make rules, the rules have to apply to everyone, and they should apply to everyone in a rational way. You can't, for economic reasons, say, oh, baseball season is starting. Okay. So as a result of that, we're going to make an exemption for private, right, private employers and athletes, as you noted. But when it comes to those who are first responders, those who have donned a uniform and assisted this city, whether it's collecting trash or putting out fires or, you know, maintaining our jail system, the reality is, is that 
it cannot be arbitrary, Laura. It cannot be capricious. And I think the judge got it right. You read the statement, of course, from the law department. We're going to appeal. This is outrageous. But the reasoning is very sound to the extent that you have disparate treatment between two forces. Right. It can't stand and it won't. Beyond the legal argument, isn't this just practical? We need workers. We certainly need sanitation workers. And COVID, the the height of the pandemic, when for, something like 4,000 Americans were dying a day, is over. So do you like this idea of them going back to work with back pay? Um, you know, the, the back pay issue, I'll, I'll defer to the attorneys on. You know, I think the politics of this mirror the legal analysis in that, you know, we're either in the situation where we need to have all these rules in place or we're not. And I think as life has gotten back to normal, as we've gotten you know pretty clear messages from political leadership and a lot of relaxation of broadly applicable mandates, it's sort of uh, unsustainable, I think, to keep specialized rules in place for too long. In a way, they kind of use Biden's, I mean, the judge in this case used President Biden's words to support his statement, essentially saying, hey, according to President Biden, the pandemic is over. And in New York, the the state of emergency ended over a month ago. So the politics really, in a way, drove this conversation. Yeah, we're out of we're far out of the triage phase of COVID. We know that's behind us. Most Americans are going back to normal life. We're back in, you know, offices, schools. Kids are back, thank God, in the classroom. The one, like, caution I would put on this is we're heading into the winter season. Uh, you know, I was working in the White House, the Department of Defense, when the pandemic first broke out. We always see an uptick in cases in the winter season. People are forced back inside. You're in closer quarters. So we also shouldn't be lax and laissez-faire about just the basic protocols we know. We're going to see spikes in the winter. You still have, you know, about 400 people dying a day from COVID. So it's still here. But I agree with the ruling. It totally makes sense. And we need yeah. the workers to fill the roles. And Not I- surprisingly, this came up, Joey, before you answer, yeah. this came up at the New York governor's debate yeah. tonight. So they have different takes on it. Here it is. I will not mandate COVID vaccines for your kids ever. I don't believe that there should be COVID vaccine mandates right now for our kids at SUNY and CUNY and community colleges and elsewhere. I believe that that mandate was wrong and that everyone who has been fired should be offered their jobs back with back pain. You and Donald Trump were the masterful COVID deniers. We are dealing with a real crisis. And the more people get vaccinated, get those shots in arms. And I would do it all over again what I did last year. So I think there's a distinction between getting vaccinated and saying it's a great idea and you absolutely should do it and a mandate which requires that you do it. And that's the big issue here. Right. The reality is, is that vaccinations from a scientific perspective, forget about the politics, forget about red versus blue, et cetera. Vaccination saves lives. Should the government be imposing that requirement and taking it back? Last point to New York. Should you, when imposing the requirement, be drawing distinctions between one for workforce versus another? predicated upon who's drawing revenue into this city. The people who put uniforms on are heroes, they're first responders. Why are we penalizing them? But athletes, you get a pass. Can't happen. Treat everyone equally, and I think we move forward. And the fact that this was a, these were state or public sector employees, they had a due process hook on this as well, right? The idea that, look, you, you have to have, there's a certain property right or interest in being able to have that employment that others might not, but they weren't afforded the same care. Yeah, without question. So due process obviously is notice and the opportunity to be heard. And before someone from the health department imposes something upon you, you should have something to say about it. You just shouldn't get a letter in the mail saying you're fired. Right. And so I think that played big into it. In addition to the equal protection, similarly situated people should be treated similarly. Remember when they taught us that? Mm, I remember it. (laughs) That didn't happen here. And Joey Jackson looked just as sharp in law school. Oh, I'm sure. Not at all. Oh, this is Joey Jackson. I don't look sharp now. 
just saying. It rolls out of bed like you that. You are kind. Uh, thank you guys very much. Okay, you have to stick around to hear this story because they thought they were going to the bottom of the Grand Canyon for a 20-minute trip. Oh. 20 hours later, they were still stuck there. Up next, the family who got trapped in the Grand Canyon caverns. Okay, imagine getting stuck and trapped 200 feet underground in an ancient cave known as Grand Canyon Caverns in Arizona. This happened this week to one family after the elevator that took them below ground malfunctioned. And that's when they had to figure out how to get everyone up and out, including a baby, a toddler, and seniors with bad backs and knees. Joining me now are Douglas Gracial and his stepdaughter, Sherry Jimenez, who were stranded down there. Guys, good to see you um, up and doing well. Sherry, just take us through this. Your family, there were eight of you, including a five-month-old and a two-year-old. You decided to go into this cavern for a 20-minute walk because it would be easy for the whole family, for the the grandparents and for the two-year-old. It was a flat 20-minute walk. You took the elevator down into the caverns. Then you took the walk. You got back into the elevator. And what happened? The elevator did not move. (laughs) And uh, so they called up to the top and let them know that it wasn't working. And they said they would reset it. And it still did not move. (laughs) And how long were you stuck down there? In total, the last person out, it was 31 hours. Oh, my gosh. 31 mm-hmm. hours. And so, uh, Douglas, what was, what was their suggestion for those 31 hours for how everybody was supposed to get out? Well, our group was the short tour, and there was another long tour group that was behind us. And when the elevator failed approximately 1130, the other group had caught up with us. And by that time, you could smell the smoke in the elevator shaft and see the smoke coming down into the cavern. And Sherry, uh, yeah, hold on, guys. Did you ahead. did you guys have food and water down there? We had water to begin with, and they brought us down food uh, after we requested it. And then after many questions that were asked, they finally decided that besides myself, my wife, Sherry, the toddlers and the baby, there was no way in the world that we were going to be able to make it up. I've got yeah. back surgery scheduled. I've got my wife's got two artificial knees. Uh, and is having trouble with those. And let me just point out, because we have a picture of this, there is an emergency staircase, or stairs, I guess, 22 flights. And this is the picture of them, which is not comforting, because basically, Sherry, describe for us what those stairs, 22 flights up, were like, what it would be like to climb those. Well, your footing would be set on a steel plank that was um, smaller than the size of a regular ladder. And one side had a handrail that was completely open. There was no 
mesh or protection from the stair to the top of the handrail. It was completely open on the right side. And on the left side, there was nothing, no handrail or anything at all. And why did it take the folks who run this elevator 31 hours to get you all out? We, I, I believe they did not want to call any emergency services. We were told, we asked them to call for uh, 911. We had no service whatsoever down there. So there was no way for us to call anybody or use the phone. So we had told them that we want them to call emergency services, the fire department, somebody to get us some help. And initially they declined saying that they would not come out because they have an escape route, which is the stairway within the shaft of the elevator. But so, they originally told us that the Wallapai Mountain, or not no Wallapai Mountain, but the Wallapai Fire Department had been called at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. And they refused to come out because there was no medical emergency. Mm. They never called at five o'clock. They never called at twelve when we when the smoke was there. We asked them to call and they never called. We kept kept insisting. Initially, initially they said they wouldn't because they wouldn't come out. Well, after uh, several requests, they said they did call, and Peach Springs, which is the Wallapai tribe, declined to come out because there was no. Uh, emergency medical condition that um, resulted in the need of their emergency services. Yeah. Nobody was dying, basically. But there or was, I mean, there could have been at any given moment, given that you had a five-month-old baby, you know, without food and a toddler and, and some compromised seniors. Um, just want you guys to know that we did call Grand Canyon Caverns for their response and their explanation. We've not heard back yet, but we'll let you know when we do. Um, Douglas and Sherry, yeah. we're just we're we're happy that you guys are okay. Mm -hmm. um, you made it out alive, but I know that that was pretty traumatic. But thanks so much for being on and sharing your story with us. Well, there's a lot more to this story. Uh, yes, <laughs> you got but, about an hour or so. Well, I don't, but I can tell that I, your phone will be ringing with a Hollywood producer at any moment. I'm sure, and you guys will be, have a primetime movie to discuss everything that went on for those 31 hours. So just I consider this the start. Time. All right, guys. Thank you. thank you. Great to talk to you. All right. All right. Thanks, thanks so Bye. much. Oh my gosh! Literally, my my eyelash popped off. <laughs> that's how story. Sorry, that's it was so. It was so they, they didn't want to stay on. They didn't want to be down there with them. They didn't want to be on my eye. I'm. I, I don't know if you could see that ladder, but the ladder. It's a ladder. No, it's a ladder. Basically, without a railing, no. up twenty two floors. You're carrying a five month old, no. a two year old. It was impossible. They had to wait. And then we have uh, another picture of them actually having to hoist them up. 22 stories in like, you know, a sort of hammock thing that they, well, that, I don't know if it's that one, but anyway, Ugh. it was intense. And I think that Douglas is right. There's more to that story that they yeah. will want to tell. There's more to that story and more to how I will be there. <laughs> what would you do if you got stuck in Grand Canyon Caverns? Treat us at Allison Camerata and at the Lara Coates. And someone come fix my eyelash too, because it did pop off. Use hashtag sound off, CNN sound off. Those are both emergencies. <laughs> So when is retirement not retirement? Because we're getting to seem like a, a big trend of sports heroes that are retiring. And then, Allison, unretiring. Then unretiring. Of course, there's Serena Williams, who announced at the U.S. Open that she would, quote, 
evolve away from tennis, only to tell the audience at a tech conference just last week, and I'm quoting here, I'm not retired. Hmm. And then there's Tom Brady, whose unretirement from the NFL may have, they say, cost him his marriage to Giselle Bunchen. Whether that's true or not, we'll see. I think it's very interesting that while much of the workforce is quiet quitting, <laughs> are they doing that? There's notable people who are unretiring. There's got to be a happy medium between quiet quitting and unretiring. Somewhere in there, you have to be happy. But I do think it's interesting. Also, you were saying that a lot of politicians oh, oh, are yeah. unretiring. Are you kidding? Well, look at the governor's race in Florida. You've got Charlie, Charlie Crist, Crist yeah. who, by the way, unretired from the governor to then become a member of Congress and then become a gubernatorial candidate again. Then you have people like um, Donald Trump or I Joe mean, he's Biden. considering unretiring. And Joe Biden, Joe Biden unretired. unretired again. Yeah. I mean, what is it about the power? The idea is it just is it the public service notion? I don't is think it the so. Power? I don't think it's the public service. Maybe? I think it's that like with Serena and Tom Brady. I think it's that when you are so identified with something, it's your identity, yeah. and it's really hard to know what you are after that and walk away from it. Well, and you're so good. I mean, it's not as That's if they, either of them are at the bottom of their game. It's we're talking about both in their own respects, the goat. Yeah, you're right. And so they why really leave when you're still that good? I mean, well, why, why haven't you left? Because you're that good. I know. We can relate. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let us know what you think about all of that. Not about the goat. That's okay. fine. Leave the goat alone. <laughs> Meanwhile, two weeks out from Election Day, major debates in hotly contested races that could determine the balance of power in Congress. Yeah. And the major line of attack, well, one of them is crime. So we're going to bring you the big moments on that topic right after this. Mm-hmm. Two weeks from tonight, polls will be closing in key battleground states, which means the candidates have just 13 days to make their final pitch to voters. And an issue that we will likely hear a lot about, we're already hearing about, is crime. So there's a lot to discuss with our CNN political commentators. We have Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, and senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. Great to have you guys here. Let's start with the Senate uh, debate, the John Fetterman and um, Mehmet Oz uh, debate that just happened tonight. And of course, crime came up. It's been a big issue in that race. So let's hear their exchange. I'm the only person on this stage right now that has con- it can, it was successful about pushing back against gun violence and being the community more safe. You know, all he's done is just put a plan up on his website in the last 24 hours. He has no experience. He has never made any attempt to try to address crime. The Fraternal Order of Police from Braddock, the small town he represented, endorsed me. They supported me because what he's saying is not true. Violence skyrocketed in Braddock. I mean, the town wasn't in a good shape when John got there. It got worse when he was there. Okay, Scott, how about it? (laughs) I know you're chomping at the bit. Well, I mean, I thought this was an important exchange because it's become one of the central issues in the campaign, and it's one of Fetterman's biggest weak points. I mean, his personal record on the parole board, his uh, statements about uh, letting people out of jail, trying to empty the jails of one third of people. I mean, this has become the real reason that Republicans have been able to reel in this race and make it essentially a tied race. Overall tonight, I will just tell you, apart from this topic, I thought this was the unraveling of one of the biggest scandals going on in this midterm cycle. The covering up and the lying about the status of John 
Fetterman. They were, we were told, oh, he mushes words together. And if he has this accommodation, it's just a hearing problem. They have not been honest with people from the minute this happened way back in the primary. They pushed this debate off as far as they could. It all came out tonight. There is no way to have watched this thing and analyzed it and said, this is fine. No way. Well, Karen, I know that you feel differently because you've had some personal uh, experience with this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, I don't think that they ever said, oh, he mushes words together. They yeah. said he has auditory processing issues yes. and that he was going to be using closed and captions. he might miss Wait, words. they didn't say it. He said it. It was in his opening statement. He said, right. oh, I mush words together. That's okay, what but he said. But I mean said. leading also, up to this. But he has also previously said, they have explained a little bit more. And look, healing is not linear, Scott. I'm here to tell you. Nine months ago, I couldn't drink a sip of water. And look at me now. My doctor said to me, you'll never have your voice back. And that's because you had a brain tumor. I had a brain tumor, had it removed, and my left vocal cord is paralyzed. Somehow my body found a way. So I, I think it's hard when we're talking about medical situations to say, they're lying. You don't know. And that's part of the problem. We don't know. And part of it is we don't know because healing is not linear. The human body is amazing. Now, what I will say is it was tough to watch. I mean, he had a few... Moments where he clearly got his hits in um, on crime. I wish he would say, I will not be lectured to by a Republican Party that defends January 6th that voted against putting more cops on the street. Like, I wish more of my Democrats would get a little more fierce on that topic. But I also think, you know, Mehmet Oz, he had a few flubs himself. I mean, he walked basically as you know, walked right into the reproductive freedom talking point. I don't want local government in the exam room with me, you know, when I'm trying to decide my personal health care business. So I don't disagree that it was, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it if I was working for Fetterman. I probably would have said, let's just yeah. take the hit and not do it. Um, I not have to debate at all, not debate just, at all, okay. because also from what I understand, he was not good in debates in the primary. So if it's already something you're not good at, particularly when you're healing and it is so hard, I can't tell you how hard it was just to try to. And you're so self-conscious that anything you say, any word you miss, people are going to be looking at you like. Does she, does she understand what I'm saying? And in my brain, I was thinking, I know exactly what you're saying. Saying it louder is not going to actually help me spit it back out to you yeah, faster. That's frustrating. You know, uh, if we're talking about the debate overall, not just crime, I mean, it, I think it's very hard for anybody to watch that and not have questions about whether he is capable of doing the job today, right? But there are, I think, offsetting factors, and the question will be how much do they count? One is, He's saying he's getting better. And as you were saying, I mean, what his capacity is today may not be his capacity in the spring or summer of of 2023. The second issue is that for a lot of voters, the individual matters much less than they used to in the Senate. They're voting for which party they want in control, whether they want Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer to be deciding what is voted on. Uh, There are certainly other candidates in the country who who obviously don't have the physical issues, but you can kind of look at their command of the issues and say, is this person ready to be a senator today? Do you mean Georgia? That might be one. Um, (laughs) But but there are a lot of voters for whom that really, the the, the ability of the individual is is secondary. Having said that, I mean, I I don't think people could watch that and come away with the feeling that, yes, he is capable, he is fully capable today of doing this job. The question is, how many voters is that dispositive? Well, can I, can I, can I, I ask well, a Wait, before Sorry. you do, um, he has an auditory processing issue. He did release a letter from his doctor last week in a way to put a potential, you know, to, an end to the conversations 
where a medical professional described what any shortcomings he had, and he did not describe them as a cognitive issue whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I want to be very careful when we're talking about one's capacity and capability to do the job as if it translates immediately to one's cognitive understanding. I don't know that's to be the case. Having said that, I don't know, I don't know if voters who are looking at the power dynamic you speak of, Ron, will appreciate the nuance. I think somebody who appreciated this in the moment and reported on it and was savaged and that we ought to talk about tonight because we talked about her on the show a few nights ago is the journalist Dasha Burns, who interviewed Fetterman and said he does he has trouble in small talk. He, he did not seem to be processing what we were talking about. The savagery from the Fetterman campaign, from Fetterman's wife, from other journalists, from media outlets. She said she should have been fired. His wife said she should be fired and face consequences for what we now know was reporting the truth. Everybody owes her an apology for the way she was treated. We know tonight everybody's been trying to slough this off like it's no big deal. It is a huge deal. I don't care what it is. His doctor, the campaign, if that guy was my doctor and he told me I was going to be all right, I'd get a second opinion. Well, this is ridiculous. Look, I think that one of the larger issues, I mean, regardless of whether or not, um, you know, John Fetterman is up to the task, is that crime is being seen, used, yes. obviously, in so many different races and seen, as we learned in the voter panel that we had on last week, Democrats and Republicans both see crime, but they see it very differently. And so Republicans, I think, see crime as street crime, that, that street crime is up. You're afraid to ride the subway. Democrats that we talked to see, see crime as access to weapons and school shootings and mass shootings, things like that. And it's just an interesting. And, and you saw that in the, in the other debates tonight, in the governor debate in Michigan. The, the key exchange was about uh, gun violence, particularly in schools, with Governor Whitmer really pushing Tudor Dixon and obviously in, in New York as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I wrote a, 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 a piece last week on a study by seven academics that looked at the murder rates in all of the major cities in the country and found that since 2016, they had actually increased slightly faster in the cities with traditional hardline prosecutors than in the cities with the progressive, quote, progressive prosecutors who are implementing many of the policies that are under attack in, in these campaigns, like uh, eliminating cash bail, or prosecuting fewer juveniles as adults. That doesn't mean that their policies were necessarily reducing crime, but it also kind of, uh, you know, blows up the idea that it's systematically Ron, increasing Ron, crime. I, who commits murders and violent acts in this country. You know, the number one predictor is if you've committed one before. And right. the people who commit violent crimes in this country are the people who are out of jail after having committed Scott, them in the first place. Scott, wait a second. You don't think that. Yes, I do think that. No, but you're talking over a prosecutor. Do you yeah. really think that recidivism is the only methodology I or the way that people commit crimes in this country? It, most of the murders in this country are committed by people who have committed previous violent acts. And, Why but, are they out of jail? But that's not the You believe in a universal life sentence? I believe in keeping violent people in jail. No, but your comment was that the idea to stem crime is to make sure people who you believe have committed crimes that before should never be let out of prison. So we believe in a universal life sentence, and that can't possibly be logical. I believe that if you are a violent person and you have murdered and raped and killed and done the most violent, heinous acts, and you are somehow finding yourself walking around on the street, I want to know why. If I were living in one of these cities, and I do live in one, Louisville, yeah, Kentucky, right. why is that? Some, some dude walked up behind two people in Louisville this week randomly slit the throat of two tourists in downtown Louisville. Why are people out walking around 
But we I mean, we don't know what that is. We don't know the horror you describe. But I'm, I'm, I'm channeling the average voter yeah. who doesn't feel safe I know you are. walking I, outside. I totally agree with that. And you know what? We have an interesting statistic. I just today just said, like, what are the crime statistics? We hear yeah, so much about right. it. What are they? And so here are some of the top cities. So Philadelphia, homicides, violent crime down 5.8% mm-hmm. over last year. But robberies, street crimes yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. Right. Atlanta, homicide, no change. Robbery down. Milwaukee, homicides up. Robbery down. New York, homicides down 14.3%. Robberies up 33%. My point is, is that, right. that this is the evergreen boogeyman because everybody yes, can relate right. to not wanting to be the victim of a crime. But the stats tell a little bit of a different story they that do. violent crimes are but down. Is, but your cities. point, Ron, though, in the right. story was that you compare a city that has a so-called progressive prosecutor versus one that does not. It's not the, actually what's happening. Yeah, right. I mean, what causes crime to rise and fall is so complex and multifaceted. And the idea that decisions of the prosecutor, I mean, these, this is not me. These are the criminologists who did this report. What they found was that the decisions of prosecutors who are pursuing the kind of policies that are under attack in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and elsewhere in the Republican head simply do not have a statistic, do not have a, a significant impact on the crime rate. The, the, the murder rate increased more quickly in cities with hardline prosecutors than with the progressive prosecutors. The, the larceny and burglary rates were almost identical. There are a lot of things that cause crime is up from the low point of around 2014. It is still way below what it was in the 1990s. It's actually plateaued in 2022 after having a big increase uh, during the pandemic years when all sorts of social relations and communities were disrupted. But it's uh, the evidence does not support the idea that one approach to prosecution is systematically better at holding down crime rates than another. And also, the policies that we're talking about, we're not talking about putting violent criminals back on the streets or, is. or saying He's cash, talking about letting or murderers cash out of jail. bail. Let her finish. We're talking about, again, you heard me say this before, there are over 500,000 people who are in jail for petty crimes because mm-hmm. they can't afford bail. Those aren't just, those are black and white people. Those are poor people. So that's what we're, when we're talking about progressive prosecutors and some of these policies. However, Scott, you know, this is exactly the talking points that we are seeing on the campaign trail every day, demagoguing what is happening with crime. The statistics are telling a slightly different story. And again, why is it then that the Republicans voted against putting more police on the street? No one believes that the Republicans are against the police. I'm sorry. In this really? election, they said defund the FBI. In, and who, they were- who, who, who invented the term defund the police? The but, Democrats. But you know, that's who invented it. say defund the FBI recently. They did say defund you the FBI. You do know that. Yes. But, yes. but you know what? I want to play, first of all, the, the top Democrat in the country, Joe Biden, he, the president, did say that he does not adhere to that principle. And the predecessor Democrat, Barack Obama, similarly said the same thing about not wanting to defund the police. But let's play this soundbite. We're talking about the New York um, governor's, governor's race between yeah. Hochul and Zeldin on the point of crime. There is no crime-fighting plan if it doesn't include guns, illegal guns, and you refuse to talk about how we can do so much more. You didn't even show up for votes in Washington when a bipartisan group of enlightened legislators voted for an assault weapon ban. I mean, we lost another child and a teacher yesterday in St. Louis because people will not support what I was able to get done here in New York, and that is a ban on assault weapons for teenagers. You can't even do that. Kathy Hochul believes 
that the only crimes that are being committed are these crimes with guns. And you, you have people who are afraid of being pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. They're being stabbed, beaten to death on the street with hammers. We need to be talking about all of these other crimes, but instead, Kathy Hochul's too busy patting herself on the back, job well done. No, actually, right now, there should be a special session. The state legislature should come back and they should overhaul cashless bail and these other pro-criminal laws with zero tolerance. There you have it. I mean, that just perfectly encapsulates the debate between Democrats and and Republicans. You know, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but it reminded me listening to that of when E.J. Dionne, you know, way back when talked about false choices. And then you had the 1994 crime bill, which said you didn't really have to choose. You could spend you could hire more police. You could spend more money on prevention and you could ban assault weapons, which is they did all of that then. And, you know, the debate, oh. the, the debate essentially, there you know, I understand, I understand, I understand. I understand. Yeah, there, there you haven't heard it's out of vogue now. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I, I did say it was out of vogue now. But the assault I, weapons ban worked. But, you know, worked. And, and look, I mean, there, there, there's nothing incompatible about saying that you want more policing, more respect for the community from the police and more restrictions on access to guns. I mean, those should not be incompatible yeah. positions. It's just very hard to get there yeah. in the way the politics but, but now flows. Here's what voters see. If you live in Pennsylvania, you, you're looking at a news story on your local uh, news right now that Wawa, the convenience, oh, had, to close, Wawa. had mm-hmm. to close two locations in Philadelphia because it's too violent to keep them open. You literally can't keep open the convenience store. So I understand your academic lecture about prosecutorial policy, but, but, the, but, the, but what voters see and what they hear and what they know is that they live in Philadelphia. They live in a violent place where you can't even go to the convenience store. And Fetterman's record on Not, this was fair well, game. I thought Oz prosecuted it well. I think it's why Zeldin has closed the gap in New York, because people inherently want to be safe. It's not partisan. Well, I'll tell but, you, when, while we're having these conversations... We'd be remiss if we didn't mention, as we're talking about the greater society and being afraid to go in convenience stores, a 15-year-old girl was gunned down in her school in St. Louis. A teacher as well, Alexandria um, was her name, Bell, just 15 years old. And her teacher in the school, Jane, Jean, excuse me, Jean Kuska, 61 years old. So as we're talking about uh, Yet another crime, troubled 19-year-old well, young man who got I his mean, hand on an AR-15. The reason I bring this up is it well, goes back to the point that you yeah. raise. And, of course, just thinking about the life that's been lost and this sweet, sweet little girl and a teacher as well is that when Republicans are talking about crime in the way you're speaking about, about homicide and about um, crime in, in outside society, and you've got Democrats talking about gun control and access to weapons, where are people safe? We want to have you all weigh in on these comments as well and to join the conversation. What and will be crime be the big issue for voters on Election Day? It certainly is at this table. And <laughs> what about the Fetterman-Oz debate tonight? How did you see it? Tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. We've got CNN exclusive reporting tonight. The DOJ trying to push further into the former president's inner circle. They're now asking a federal judge to force two top lawyers, that's the key word here, from the Trump White House, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, to testify about conversations they had with the former president. That amid a secret court fight, Trump has been waging to block former advisors from testifying in front of the federal grand jury investigating January 6th. Back with us now to discuss, Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, and Ron Brownstein. You know, as we're talking about the greater issue of democracy in peril, 
The president now is saying, of course, that democracy is on the ballot. We know that abortion is on the ballot, crimes on the ballot, a number of issues. When you hear about this and think about the reporting that there is still an interest by DOJ in particular to try to get the testimony surrounding January 6th, is there still the electoral appetite, do you think? Look, I mean, inflation is 9 percent. President's approval rating is a 40 percent. Uh, in that climate, it is going to be tough for the party in power. One of the reasons they are still in the game, Democrats are still in the game, at least for controlling the Senate, is because, in fact, over the summer, they were able to energize and activate their voters uh, around issues, including the preserving of democracy as well as abortion. Does that completely erase all the other factors that are out there? Obviously not. But it is a mistake to say that that is not a factor also in itself. Clearly, one of the reasons I think Democrats have been able to close, not eliminate, but reduce the enthusiasm gap and also hold on to so many white collar voters are also facing inflation and lowering 401ks is because there is a genuine concern about what the Trump movement means for the future of American democracy. Not necessarily a majority voting proposition, you know, because people worry about other things, but it is a factor in allowing them to at least stay in the game. Right. But this is neither here nor there for the DOJ. They're just doing their investigation. They're not supposed to factor in what the, you know, voters want. They're just pressing on with their investigations, taking a while. It is taking a while. I think that's exactly the point. I mean, that is what Donald Trump does oh so well Mm. when it comes to litigation. How do you stretch this out? And I would imagine part of their strategy, get it past Election Day. He's hoping for a more favorable Congress who will look out for him, who will attack Joe Biden. I mean, I've served in a White House that was under siege and that you don't have the same amount of time and energy to fight on some of the other fronts. So I imagine that's part of the strategy. Maybe they should ask um, John Stewart to try to hone in. Yes. Have you, did you guys see this clip that's going around about him? Well, watch this. And tell me if you think that he should be a part of the team to quicken things up. Donald Trump lost Arizona, period. I've said that from the very beginning. There have been isolated incidences thus far that we've identified yes. and we are prosecuting. Yes. We still have some active investigations going on, but People but can draw the their main, own conclusions. There is we, no, no, people cannot draw their own conclusions. There, That's the point of the law. Yeah, it is. The law is that you have facts right. and you have fiction. Right. The fact is the election in Arizona was well run, not fraudulent, and not stolen from Donald Trump, according to even your investigations. I, I have never said. Why is it, it so hard to just say yes to that? I just, I guess because I've spent my entire, most of my career as a prosecutor, and we still have some ongoing cases. So in your mind, you still feel like after all this, you're going to discover a concerted effort to steal the election from Donald Trump and, and that it was fraudulent. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. So why can't you say the election in 2020 was not stolen or fraudulent? I will tell you this. As I said, this I, is blowing my mind. Really? I'm a prosecutor and I say yes or no. <laughs> I mean, I think I that do it. The, the, here's, here's where I think, Scott, that it always comes down to. They say is- there are isolated incidents. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't change anything. That doesn't mean that the whole election is fraudulent. But that's what they hang their hat on. There are isolated incidents that we're still investigating, so I can't say it. Why? It won't change anything. You know that Donald Trump didn't win the state, but they can't say that. They, 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 I, I hear this all the time from people in these states. They cling to the isolated incidents as though that's going to tip the balance of something. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously responding to constituents. I mean, he's hearing from people. He feels like he's got to be responsive to them. I mean, I guess if you wanted to put this in a 
uh, you know, a silver lining around this is that if a prosecutor like this guy who acknowledged at the beginning of the interview that Donald Trump did not win Arizona, he said that right out of the gate. I guess if over time he just continues to fail to find <laughs> any evidence well, of something happening. TikTok, that, yeah. you know, it's uh, been a couple of years. It's you know, been eventually, years. eventually, you know, maybe people will say, OK, well, I guess but, I guess there wasn't. But that's but that's that the, seem but, to be happening. But the no. issue is there is a group of people who no matter what they're told, are going to continue to believe this. And Trump relies on that group right. to maintain uh, well, you know, his I status. Offer, that, that clip is why Americans are worried about democracy. That's what that clip says. Because that pretzel logic of why can't you just say, and actually the Washington Post just did a report on this, in three years, 20 cases. And in those 20 cases... You know, it's like a couple of people, some people voted. And sometimes they're Republicans. Sometimes they're supposed to. So, I mean, the, I mean, so that's, that's the thing. And this is the, the other thing, though, that's so fascinating is the fact that he's been investigating has actually created more conspiracy theories and less certainty about the voting in Arizona. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if John Stewart, I didn't see the whole interview. I don't know if he asked him this. But the real question to ask Mark Brnovich is not looking back. It's looking forward. Mm. Today, there are people with automatic weapons in tactical gear, hiding their license plates, sitting outside of drop boxes in Arizona, intimidating people, dropping off their ballots. And what that says is that the this is almost like one of those movies where the contagion has escaped the lab, whether or not they prosecute Donald Trump. Ultimately, the election denial and the, the corollary of that, efforts to intimidate our, our voters or to make it harder to vote, has spread broadly within the party. We're talking about full-scale conspiracy theorists who might, in fact, get elected as Secretary of State in Arizona and Nevada in a climate where voters are dissatisfied with the party in power. The, the extent of this threat now goes so far beyond Trump. It has so infected so much of the Republican Party. So many officials feel that they have to bend to that group that, that which is not an, in, an incidental part of the coalition. You're talking about two-thirds to three-quarters of Republicans saying that the election was stolen. That is not just an attitude that looks back. It is an attitude that shapes what's coming next. Yes. And, you know, we were, we're all gearing up for this crisis in 2024. You look at a state like Arizona, the wolf is at the door. Yeah. The crisis is here now. And, and I think there's a question of what everyone, from him to the attorney general of the U.S., Merrick Garland, what are they going to do to protect voters' rights in this climate? Excellent Republic, question. if you can keep it, right? Yeah. Uh, thank you all. We have a few more questions for you because mm. did Samuel Alito, the justice who wrote the opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, assure late Senator Ted Kennedy that he respected the legal precedent in the Roe decision? You've probably heard that somewhere else. So we're going to now know what Kennedy wrote in his diary and how other justices seem to have echoed some of that. That's next. In 2005, then Supreme Court nominee Samuel Alito told Senator Ted Kennedy that he respected Roe versus Wade and that he believed a right to privacy was, quote, settled law. This is according to entries in the late senator's diary and published in The New York Times. Alito is quoted as saying, I believe that there is a right to privacy. I think it's settled as part of the liberty clause of the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. So I recognize there is a right to privacy. I'm a believer in precedence. I think on the Roe case, that's about as far as I can go. Kennedy was skeptical of those claims at the time. And it was that very right to privacy that Alito called into question in the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade this summer. And with abortion bans going into effect in states across the country, the comments have renewed questions over whether 
some conservative justices have misled the country in their nomination hearings. We're back with Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, and Ron Brownstein. Karen, that rings a bell. Huh. The misleading. Wait, um, at, let's, wait. Paging Susan Collins. Wait. Paging Senator oh, Susan I Collins. I was misled. Who, I'm so shocked. Right. Uh, but she felt that way about um, yeah. Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, we could have told her he was misleading. And I think, as a matter of fact, we did. Sure. I mean, it's no surprise that what this reveals is what we've been talking about for months now, which is that the Supreme Court has taken a hard right turn And certainly many of these decisions that are coming down feel much more about ideology. In fact, in the Alito decision, there are sections that are taken from right-wing talking points. So, uh, yes, it turns out ideology factors into Supreme Court decisions these days, which does not bode well for our democracy. By the way, compared to Collins, though, Kennedy did not vote in favor of Alito for that reason. He felt as though he was not genuine about that. But remember the moment that the Dobbs decision came out, that draft opinion? Alito was actually Mm. speaking tonight at the Heritage Foundation, and he commented on the investigation. Here it is. ...opposition of the court, and it's beneficial to have the expression of a variety of views. So I think personally, you know, here again, I have no special status in talking about this. Nine is a good number, somewhere in the middle range. Some of the, some state Supreme Courts have seven. Uh, they find that workable. Something in sort of the middle range would be a good number. About There was a clip instead where he's talking about something else, where he's mentioning the idea of, and I'll paraphrase here, the Supreme Court justice, I like that. Um, It's the idea of saying (laughs) instead, you know, I'll play the part on television today. The idea of how he felt that that leak gave people license to try to harm the justices because they felt that. Right. Because they thought that they could harm one that would change everything. Hence the reason he's in part talking about nine. Alito feels himself a victim quite often. Almost every speech he gives is some kind of. Uh, grievance uh, at how religious people are discriminated against or conservatives are discriminated against. Um, I kind of look at this and, uh, by the way, I think it was John Farrell, my former National Journal colleague's biography of Ted Kennedy, that, so shout out to John uh, on that, uh, that, that, that unearthed the diary entry. They feel, he feels empowered. I mean, you know, it, it is more his court at this moment than John Roberts. And the fact that he was willing to go as far as he was on Dobbs after saying that to Ted Kennedy once, to me, is a signal that they, they are not done uh, in this project of reconsidering precedents uh, that really have evolved since the 1960s. The idea of a rights revolution in which we have nationalized more rights and reduced the ability of states to constrain those rights. I don't think this majority is done unraveling that. And where it goes next, contraception, same-sex marriage. Voting rights. You know, I, I don't know. Does it, is it a catalyst for voters still? Uh, I got, well. I was going to say more so than it used to be. Actually, I do think well, and abortion I saw, certainly and is. well freedom. I mean, for a lot yeah. of women, when we're talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it is literally about the freedom to control your body, and that means access to abortion, and that is where it also connects to democracy. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I work on Alito's confirmation actually in the Bush White House. I know him to be a man of high integrity. I don't. I mean, I don't think there's a Republican in the country that take Ted Kennedy at his word on anything. Given but, so, you and so and so, I don't. I don't so know what he said. Were, you don't think that, that that those were Alito's words? I don't know, but I know that you think Kennedy lied to his own diary. Do uh, uh, you want to litigate some of the things Ted Kennedy no, no, did in his life? Do you, you think he lied to his own yeah, diary? I mean, just just, just be clear. Are you saying <laughs> you think he lied to his own I, diary? I think in I the think, moment. I think liberals right now are trying to make themselves feel better about the way this court has broken down and try to argue that people have misled and this and that and the other. These are conservative justices. They are strict constructionists. So, they have never presented themselves 
otherwise. They said that they believed that it was precedent yes. and that Roe versus Wade was settled law, and it's been reaffirmed many he times. He did not say, that's not what it said. He did not say Roe versus Wade was settled law. No, not, none of these people in their confirmations promised they would rule a certain way on a promise, certain case. But don't they, you think that by saying things yeah. like that, that that gave the impression that you, they you, felt that it was precedent and can, they respected stare decisis? You can believe in precedent. But at the same time, you can also believe that some things deserve to be but, unwound. But I, I think, I think that he, again, you mentioned, though, in his diary, it's happened there. before in this country. Yeah. Really bad issues. Yeah. Excuse me. Like, one of the things that he mentioned in the diary entry, which newsflash to all prosecutors and evidentiary rule followers, that a diary entry is no longer uh, uh, mm. evidence you could actually include because credibility is an issue for mm. Scott Jennings. <laughs> but I'll tell you about this, and that is he mentioned that Alito wrote a memo for the Reagan administration in which he spoke about why he felt Roe v. Wade ought to be overturned. Mm. And then he told Kennedy, according to the diary entry, that he did that because he wanted to essentially conform his viewpoint to secure promotion. Mm. That was the reason why Alito, he believed, mm. was not somebody who could conform. If you could conform your, configure your viewpoints for a promotion, what might you do for a life tenure mm, but position? Can I say that once again, I think the key issue, like with Brnovich, is looking forward, not looking back. The difference between the language that Alito used in public and certainly in private to Teddy Kennedy and the fervor, ferocity, and confidence of that decision just suggests to me how much more unbound they feel at this moment than he did then. And that signals to me that they are not done and that we are going to face a series of decisions, whether it's affirmative action, uh, whether it's further constrictions on red state, on blue states, on religious, uh, uh, on civil rights versus religious freedom or guns. This court is not done trying to unravel a lot of things that Americans have come to understand as part of their legal framework. And that is going to be, I think, a growing issue in politics in the way that abortion is yeah. now. And it's going to oh, continue yeah. to threaten the legitimacy of the court. We shall really see. Interesting, guys. Speaking of, of lawsuits, which are all... I told you, Allison, baseball is not America's favorite pastime. It's litigation. Tell <laughs> yes, you this. I know. I have clung to that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, telling, I'm yes. sorry, World Series. I know it's coming yeah. up. But speaking of... Pass the bar? I, you know what? I, I Look, he used to be a part of Washington. I won't yeah. go into it right now, okay? But I will go into what's happening next on this program, and that's a Missouri woman who is suing the cosmetics giant L'Oreal, claiming that her uterine cancer was directly caused by her regular use of its chemical hair straightening products. We're going to hear from this woman and her attorney, Benjamin Crump, in just a moment. A Missouri woman is suing L'Oreal, claiming their hair straightening products directly caused her uterine cancer. Now, according to the lawsuit, Jenny Mitchell used L'Oreal's products from around 2000 until March of 2022. She was diagnosed with uterine cancer in August of 2018 and underwent a full hysterectomy the following month. The lawsuit comes days after a major study found frequent use of chemical hair straightening products could put women at a higher risk of developing uterine cancer. We reached out to L'Oreal numerous times for a response, but have yet to hear back. Jenny Mitchell joins me now along with her attorney, Ben Crump. Jenny, Mr. Crump, so nice to see both of you, but not under these circumstances. Can, can you just help us to understand, Jenny, what it was like to have seen the study that came out linking, according to the NIH, uterine cancer to some of these products? What did that feel like hearing that? It 
felt like I was reliving it all over again. Mm. Um, it was hard to hear, um, but it was shocking. How long had you been using the products and do you think that it is tied to the uterine cancer that you were diagnosed with? I definitely believe so. I have been using these products since, as far as I can remember, mm -hmm. since I was eight years old. Um, that's typically when most African-American young girls and families start to use these products. And so, yeah, since I was around eight years old. And part of that concern, Ben, uh, turns you on this, is the study talks about the the prolonged use in particular of these products. And we know with the different societal standards, we talked about it on this show in the past when the study came out, about beauty, about the consequences in the workplace, things that prompted the Crown Act, for example. That there is a great deal of pressure and preference to use these sorts of products. You filed this lawsuit, and it's one of now at least three in this nation why do you think this is so important to file it? And, and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, Laura Coates, being the parent of a black daughter uh, and having many young black women in our families, that we need to ring the alarm. I mean, this, I believe, because our daughter's health are at risk. We don't want our daughters to get uterine cancer and have to have a total hysterectomy like Jenny Mitchell and go into menopause before the age 30. We believe this is a public health crisis. If it was your daughter, wouldn't you say, let's make sure that we address this. Let's not have any of our little girls use any more of these chemical relaxes because we believe based on the science, there is a direct and proximate cause that two to one, they have a stronger chance of being diagnosed with uterine cancer. And I don't care about this European standard of beauty. Our black girls are beautiful enough without having to try to conform to American standards of beauty at the risk of losing their uterus. Well, Jenny, to that point, I mean, certainly we are also American and also define the standard and thinking about the way in which we approach it, you know, thinking about all this and just your experience, and you've been vocal about this and through this lawsuit, the crux of this is that this wasn't happenstance, according to the litigation. This was a knowing marketing based on the use of products and the ingredients included that there would be that link. What message do you want to share about this lawsuit? I just want to bring awareness and I don't want another young woman at the age of 28 years old to develop uterine cancer and have to go through menopause before the age of 30 because of these products that are on the shelf mm. and lose the dream of carrying their own child. Nobody wants that. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And I will follow and we will continue to cover this litigation. Mr. Crump, Jenny, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Laura. Jenny is really brave.
She is really brave to share her personal story with all of us yeah. for our awareness. And it has heightened my awareness, I think, all the time now about the connection between that and our health. I mean, it was a conscious decision for me to stop using those, those products in my hair. And I have a daughter. Yeah. All right, it's time for all of you to sound off. We'll read your tweets next. Okay, it's time to hear your thoughts and your tweets are rolling in. What are they saying? Well, one of them says, um, hoped Fetterman would have performed better. I was hoping Fetterman would do better. He was obviously working hard to not make a mistake, which made him look awkward and too anxious. Okay, here's another one about the debate. Fetterman performed well, considering his stage of recovery. I think we are quick to count a person out. I'm sure that there are several senators serving with some disabilities of which we are not aware. Mm, Touche. Last one also says, all sides need to stop screaming past each other, listen, compromise, and get stuff done. I'm right, you're wrong, doesn't cut it. Hmm. There you have it. I like it. You know where to find us? At the Laura Coates and also Allison Camerata. Thank you for watching, everyone. And our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.